If you guys have been listening to Ask Women for a while, you probably know my voice associated with some cynicism, maybe some jokes you're not a fan of, or maybe you are a fan of because you've got great taste. Well, either way, I've come a long way from that cynical gal, and I'm doing amazing things helping guys get their banter and conversation skills on track, as well as making those dating profiles look not so terrible. Or dare I say good? No, dare I say great. I get them looking great. And I've been doing it long enough now that I'm seeing actual results coming in from guys that I've worked with, like, you know, for example, engagements, things like that. I have to say, I feel pretty good about my skills, and those dudes do too. So if you want to be smooth and witty in conversation or smooth and witty in your profile, you know who to come and see, and that's me, Kristen. And I'm at kristenandchill.com. All of my stuff is up there if you guys want to hit me up and uh, get my help. So again, kristenandchill.com. Charm more than just her socks off. Want to know the hidden meaning behind what women say and do? Then check out the Chictionary. It's the Wing Girl Methods manual that gives you a full rundown of all the things women say that confuse men written in dictionary format. Go get a copy of the Chictionary by going to winggirlmethod.com slash chick. That's winggirlmethod.com slash chick. Coming up on this week's episode of the Ask Woman podcast, we are not going to look into the emotional, feeling side of women. Today, we're going to talk about science, hardcore facts, data, analytics. I have a special guest on the show who is going to tell us how to scientifically help remove or at least calm down any fears that you have surrounding women, approach anxiety, asking for a number, going in for a first kiss, talking to women, being in a relationship with with women, all of it. We are going to scientifically tell you how to calm it, help it, eliminate it, all of it. So keep listening. Today, it is just me, Marnie, if you haven't recognized the voice. And I have a special guest right now on the line with me. It is Chris Brewster, and he is a data scientist that works in the field of social science. And I thought this was just fascinating. Like Chris reached out to me, I think, two months ago and just gave me a ton of information, like just saying all of these amazing things that he could teach my listeners and my clients about approach anxiety and just how to really just alter your mind. It was really, really fascinating. And I'm not going to talk for too long because I'm going to mess it up, but I'd rather Chris relay the information. So Chris, welcome to the show. And thanks for talking to us about this. Well, I don't think you'll mess it up. Um, from your book, I've, <laughs> I've seen that you, all your your stuff is uh, well-cited and everything, which I'm very impressed by, which is um, okay. part of the reason that I reached out to you. A lot of the, the stuff in that field is not so scientific uh and you know somebody with citations and actually did their research it's just impressive that somebody went through the um scrutiny and i just wanted to go back to one thing you said you said so science uh, i just wanted to cl- clarify that for the listeners um basically just the social sciences uh the science basically the science of human behavior okay which is really important the science of human human behavior so tell us tell us about the science of human be- behavior when it comes to attraction what what have you been researching and finding and I, and we we talked before we talked um off air as well so you could just prep me a little bit about what you were going to be talking about but y- you've you've stated that you are strictly interested in 
hardcore facts and data. You're not using your own gut feeling to interpret things that you see in the social world. You're actually taking hardcore facts. So can you tell people a little bit more about that? Yeah, I do think that that's important. I think uh, the difference between science and the rest of... It's a very important philosophy because the rest of the world just... Science is you come up with a hypothesis, you test that hypothesis, and then you test it again, and then you test it again, and then you test it again. You, you test it over and over and over again. And once you've come up with you know 10 or 20 test results, then you have something that's maybe fact. The rest of right. the world, right. <laughs> if they test it once, that's a lot. Science is just very rigorous. And that's the only difference between the scientific method and the way that most of the world thinks. It's just the simple, the simple fact that everything is tested. Everything needs to be, it, there's a very rigorous standard for what is factual and what is not. And I think that is important in any area of life because you need to know what's true and false. Separating truth from false, like, you know, we're plopped into this world. We really don't know what's going on. You have people on YouTube talking about Illuminati and just things that, that we don't know if if they're true or false, just separating truth from false is probably like the biggest skill that we could, uh, you know, we could acquire. And I think the data, data is definitely uh, the future of that. Well, do you think that data has a place in social interactions, like social sciences and social psychology? I can, you know, like that was one of my favorite classes in college and I love some of the experiments that were done. Yeah. But when it comes to attraction and dating, can you really go with data? Does data really tell you enough information about it? I, that's what yeah, I'm ha- because, okay. So tell me about yes, it. Yes, because it because it tells you what people are actually doing. You could assess what what the numbers say that people are actually doing. I think that's a mistake to get overly analytic and say that data is the only answer and say that intuition has no place because of course it is. It's simply just a way of testing, like I said, fact from fiction, like like. Once we see the data on that, we could say 72% of people do X, 72% of people do Y, and it's just another method of separating truth from false. And that's basically it. Like it's yeah. Well, we, when, you had a little more. No, well, when you had initially reached out to me, we weren't necessarily talking about direct attraction, um, but you were talking mainly about. I'll, I'll I'll phrase it or categorize it as reprogramming your brain. And retraining the way that you think when it comes to fear of rejection and approach anxiety. And I, well, I, I think that's. Oh, sorry, go, go on. Ahead. No, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, I was just going to say, like, I really, I really want this to be your episode, and I want you to just instruct people because these are huge things. So let's let's tackle approach anxiety first. We've talked it about it several times on our show, um, and obviously, we've given ways to get over approach anxiety, mindsets to have, but I'd love to hear the statistical data, social science point of view on how to alter approach anxiety. Well, let's put it this way. If you went into a therapist's office and you said, I have a fear of spiders, I have a fear of heights, I have a fear of X, I have a fear of Y, you're going to get you know, it's well-researched what, what to do about that. And all fear is the same. Like it's, you know, whether it's approach anxiety or fear of spiders or fear of airplanes, it, there's really not much different. It all lights up the same part of the brain. So 
what I think is very useful is to uh, reverse engineer what science has to say about fear in general, and okay. you could apply it to the same thing. So what we do in, um, in cases of, let's say, let's say fear of spiders, right, or fear of public speaking, what we do is we use a thing called exposure therapy. Right. And there's many ways to do this. You know, a lot of people get caught up. They're like, oh, that means I'm just going to have to face the fear that I'm scared of. You know, so like my therapist is telling me to face the fear, but I'm scared of it. So what is he really doing? He's just telling me to, to right, do he's just, it. He's just giving me a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. But that's actually not the case because when it's done in in a therapeutic setting, it's done very structured. It's done in little bite sized chunks that we know that people can handle. Um, for instance, Let's just say somebody has social anxiety. Uh, their first their first mission can just be asking somebody to time. It could be as simple as that. Like, you, you know, you're not going to go, you, your therapist isn't going to go, if you have social anxiety, oh, go into a huge party and give a speech to a million people. Like, you're going to do it in bite-sized chunks so that you could get comfortable. You don't want to throw the clients into the deep ends. You know, you want them to start in the shallow waters. And I, I think that is the difference between just that and quote unquote face your fears. Um, Definitely. And, and you, you and I talked about another way to do this where you didn't actually have to interact with people for that first step where you can do it as a mental rehearsal uh, for yourself so that you are desensitizing yourself at the very and most basic level possible. So do you want to talk a little bit about, about that? I could definitely do that. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I, I think is interesting is something new that we're we're starting to do is uh, virtual is basically the virtual reality uh, fear reduction. So you put people in a virtual setting, and we find that their fear is reduced from that. Now, to take that a step further, you know, setting up uh, situations like that is expensive. There's a lot of you know, a lot you'd have to write programs for that. So it's really not as um, flexible as you would like. Yeah, well, right. it's effective, but it's cost prohibitive, you know, okay. or just not always realistic for every fear. So another thing that we have is um, there was a man called Joseph Wolpe back in the 60s, right? He did uh, experiments basically on the same exact thing, uh, where instead of actually going into a situation, you put them through imagined situations, like very, very vividly imagined situations that would, you know, invoke terror. Like it, it actually creates the same response. If if a client is to imagine something, it creates the same exact response as if they were really there, if it's vividly imagined enough. Because the brain doesn't really realize that it's the same way that if you're watching a movie. Like in reality, there's nothing happening. Like you're not being chased by a lion, but you still get involved with that movie because your brain interprets it almost on some level as reality. Right. Because in so some way, in you're still being exposed to it, but on like the very basic low fear level level, but it still instills fear or it still can instill fear, some sort of gut reaction to it. Yeah, any type of emotion. Yeah. So let's say somebody came and said, I have approach anxiety. What would mm -hmm. be the three things that you would recommend to them? So first, you would say to start visualize. Like, I, I want to hear what you have to say because I'm not the scientist, but it's advice that I provide people as well when I do coaching with them. And actually, I will say, or you and I talked a bit about this. 
you inspired me to create a new program. And initially, I wanted to do something with VR, but I went and I met with a whole bunch of like VR specialists. Sounds expensive. (laughs) And freaking expensive. So if anybody is listening and they do want to create a VR experience with me that can help people, you know, being being sexual, um, anything that has to do with dating and attraction and putting men into that uh, VR space to sort of maneuver their way through those first steps and get some practice down, please contact me and and let me know how we can do this together. But um, from what I found out, it's extremely expensive. So I did start looking into NLP programming and also like, you know, those meditation things that you can download from iTunes that you go to sleep and they're basically walking your brain through success scenarios. So I'm, I'm going to create a couple of those, which I think will be really helpful for a lot of people so that th- they can put to practice what you're talking about. But enough well, actually, about... Sorry. Actually, actually, it may not be as expensive as you think. Um, for you to design like something like a video game, that would be insanely expensive. But if you were to uh, create something like a video recording in 3D... That may not be that expensive, and that may be just as effective. Mm, All right. So if anybody there is a specialist in VR, (laughs) contact me. So, But if we're not able to provide that virtual reality experience for people just yet, walk me through the first three steps for curbing the anxiety. I'm not going to say that it eliminates it, because even for myself, I, 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 I practice these things on a daily basis. I've done everything that we're going to talk about shortly, um, but I still have that ping in my stomach. So so what would be the first three steps that you would tell people to do in practice? The first three steps. Okay, well, just basically, it's really only one step. It's just a matter of, we call it flooding. Basically, there's there's a couple of different ways to do it. You could either imagine your absolute worst most feared situation, or you could gradually go through and make a higher... Basic, all right, the way that the original uh, research came up is we call it a anxiety hierarchy. So we started off with the least anxiety-provoking item, then we start gradually building it up from there. So at the end of it would be your worst, most feared situation, but in the beginning would be... Eh, not so much, you know, asking somebody for the time. It's really, it's really not much or just seeing somebody um, and not talking to them. So like the first couple need to be like a joke. It's almost laughable. So do you, do you, would you pre-plan this and like how, how much time would you need? So I, I, I think I told you, I had read the book Psycho-Cybernetics a long time ago, which is given to millions of salespeople and millions of Golf professional golfers. It's and it teaches yeah, and it teaches you how to do mental rehearsal. And the instructions that are given is: give yourself a half an hour every single night. Go sit in a chair somewhere that you're calm and comfortable and relaxed. Turn the lights down to the level where you feel comfortable and close your eyes and then mentally rehearse. So, is that something that you would say would be helpful as well for approach anxiety? Yes, I think they're subtly different, but yes, I do. Um, mental rehearsal is not so not well. I mean, it can be, but it's not so much about fear. It's just about acting in new ways. So, mental rehearsal. Let's say. Um, oh, so it's not the same thing that you're talking about. Sorry that I'm, ste- no, I'm, no, I'm stepping on your toes. So then I don't want to jump ahead. No, no, you're not. Okay. No, no, no it's fine. They're subtly different. Basically, mental rehearsal is kind of creating neural pathways. 
so that when a new situation comes up, you will act differently. But it's not necessarily for feared situations. Now, if you did it correctly, it could be for feared situations. Now, these things are kind of like a Venn diagram where certain ones overlap with the other ones, but they are they are subtly different. Um, and there's actually, besides those two, there are other ones. Um, there's, there's a lot of different things. So, But yes, mental rehearsal can definitely be helpful. Okay, but I, I want to go back to the other thing that you were advising because I, I, for some reason, I, I thought they were very similar. So walk me through exact steps for people on how to do what you were initially talking about, which is desensitization and using your imagination. Okay, exact steps. You create a hierarchy of... There, there are example hierarchies that you can find on the, in, on the internet and it, you could put it in your post. We could, uh, we, I could send it to you via email. Okay. But you would come up with basically your lowest anxiety-provoking scenario. Then you would... You know, you could come up with all of 30 different scenarios, but the top should be the least anxiety provoking and the bottom should be the most anxiety provoking. But there's also Sorry, some wait, controversy. When you say you should come up with them, does that mean that you write them down? That you. Yes, write them okay, down. So you write them yep. down. So you literally would write down, I get anxiety when I'm in a room with 30 people I don't know. Yes, but that might be further down the hierarchy. Okay. The, uh, that, it probably wouldn't be at the top. Something like getting an invitation in the mail to a party Ooh, okay. would be at the top. Okay. Yeah. So you want to start with stuff that's really not even anxiety provoking at all, or very, very mildly. Like on a scale from one to ten, maybe it's a three. Okay. You know. So you start with those, and then once that three gets to a zero, you're able to start. You're able to move down the list to the next one. Now, there's also there's also other things that are going on. You could ask somebody. Somebody, there may be a reason that a person is anxious. Maybe they have some beliefs in their head, like uh, inferiority beliefs. Um, so sometimes it's it's good to tackle those too. Like that would be like cognitive behavior therapy. So, for example, somebody may be feeling anxious because they feel like they're not enough. They feel like they have low self esteem. They feel like they feel like they're not making a good impression. They feel like an inferior. Could be a lot of things. For sure. There's many reasons for it. So wait, let me just walk walk you through this again. So you write down this list of yep. like this hierarchy list of things that cause you low level anxiety up to high level anxiety. And then within this list, when you look at it and it's all on paper, then do you decide if there is a feeling, like a general feeling that this or how how does that work? How does or is that something that's completely separate? There should be, I mean, they should all be anxiety-provoking situations. So you should be able to look at them and say, yes, this would provoke anxiety for me. Then you would go through that list and you would go start with the first item. You would vividly imagine it, like pretend like you're actually there. It's, it's not enough to just, you know, get a vague outline. Like you want to really be there and you want to feel every ounce of anxiety. And then after a little bit, that anxiety is going to gradually decline because you get used to it. That's that's kind of how the brain works. It just when there's an anxiety provoke, it's called extinction. When we're confronted by this situation, it just your body says, "Huh, there's nothing to be scared of. I'm not in danger. My arm isn't ripped off. Nothing's wrong." So there's this, this, there's no reason to feel fear about this. Okay. And what if you still do feel fear once you're you're facing you keep doing it until you don't? Really? How long can it, until, it take people yeah. to kind of? calm themselves down from their, their fear. 
Not very long. That's that's another thing. You don't necessarily want to calm yourself down. Um, this is kind of controversial within science, uh, whether you do want to con- calm yourself down, but there's a lot of studies that say that actually not calming yourself down is more beneficial. Your fear will turn off. It, it, it will. Once your body realizes it's not in danger, there's no danger, it will turn off. It, it's just how the brain works. Really? If you'll allow me to digress for one second, I, I'll try to keep yeah. this brief. But let's say we put, there's been experiments where you take a, uh, a, a predator doll, right, for birds. Like owl, you put an owl, a fake owl in a room full of birds, right? At first, they flap their wings, they start hitting the owl, they freak out because they're terrified. But then after you know, a few minutes, they start calming down, start calming down because they realize this owl cannot, is not hurting them. It's not causing them any danger. So in their minds, this is no longer, there's no, there's no reason to feel fear toward this. So what I'm trying to illustrate with that is when you're in the presence of a situation that is n- not hurting you, your brain says, it's not hurting me. There's no reason to fee- feel fear. The only reason that fear exists is your brain thinks that somehow you are going to get hurt, your status is going to get hurt, uh, food is going to be taken from you, resources are going to be taken from you. Just your physical or social safety is at risk. Okay. That's, that's what the entire purpose of fear is. And when you realize that that's not the case, it turns off. Really? Okay, so for example, somebody were to write down about their anxiety of approaching women. So can can you maybe give an example from that point of view of how that person would would first write it down as a fear of theirs or an anxiety provoking situation and then well, you would, how would how they how do they imagine it to to not cause that fear well the first thing you would want to do is you would want to come up with a scenario that's not that anxiety provoking like maybe just Seeing a, seeing a moderately attractive woman on the street, just seeing her, not, not going up to her, not talking to her. Now, but for a lot of, for, for some people that may actually provoke some small amount of anxiety, just seeing them, that's a perfect place to start because it's not too much, it's not too little. And you can, you can gradually, gradually build it up from there. So from seeing a moderately attractive woman to going and asking a moderately attractive woman what the time is. There's no risk there. I mean, there's not any real risk there. There's not. That's why it's. That's why it's at the bottom of the right. hi- hierarchy, as opposed to higher up. Now, if you were actually to go up there and say, ask her out or ask her phone number, something like that, maybe lower, uh, much higher on the hierarchy because it's more anxiety provoking. Okay, and so you're saying that doing this practice exercise um, for however long you need to do it would. It, what does it? What's the effect of it? it? It doesn't take away. It doesn't take away that it might be challenging to still approach, right? But it takes away that fear. Is that is that what I'm understanding? Theoretically, it can take. A, well, what do you mean by the challenging? Um, I think the only real challenge of approaching is the fear. I mean, if you really think about it, there's no real physical challenge to it. So, really, the only thing you're battling there is fear. And, you know, insecurities, which may be the root of the fear, but the only thing you're really fighting is your own mind. Right. Well, let's say they are insecurities. So, so how, how do those pop up for you while you're doing this exercise? That's, that's kind of, uh, that's, that's a little bit of a deeper topic, but that, 
it's kind of separate, if that makes sense. What you would want to do in that situation is really tackle the insecurities. So basically, if somebody has a belief, let's say let's say they're bald, right? And they believe that women just don't like bald guys. Right. That, that's their belief. For whatever reason, that's what they believe. You would have to tackle that belief. And that would that might be the entire reason that you're feeling the majority of the approach anxiety. Let's say that belief wasn't there. Maybe maybe just pulling that out would be enough to eliminate a lot of it. So and how would you I'm do that? You, just by identifying it that that's how No. So uh, how do you change do that? All right. The change beliefs. Um what we do is there's a couple different approaches. Um there's mindfulness approaches and then there's cognitive behavior approaches. Mindfulness approaches just recognize the fact that it's only a thought. Like the, the the idea that women don't like bald men is just a thought. There's it's only a spark in your brain. There's really nothing that's actually stopping. Um, now the cognitive behavior therapy would actually ask you to look into the evidence for that. Like it would ask you, do you really have evidence that women don't like bald men? Like what percentage of of women don't like bald men? Is it that bald men never ever have girlfriends in their life? Is it that as soon as a guy starts balding, so this should be easy. Diving into the logic behind these fears that should be easy for a lot of men. It sometimes is easier said than done, but yes, it, it is pretty easy once you do it correctly. If you do it correctly, yes, it's very easy. So. Uh, one approach that I've heard is really just doing research behind it. Like, you know, if you could find, if you could find actual research behind like attraction and bald men, like there's some, some research regarding like stubble and beards and just different, different types of styles that girls go for. And, you know, if you were to actually research the research behind bald men, maybe you might find that Yes, women have a preference for a full head of hair, but is it really detrimental where a girl is going to freak out and run away when she's approached by a bald man? Probably not. Okay, interesting. So that's that's really just being a participant in bringing your subconscious core beliefs to Her, yes. the surface level yes. and then adjusting yes, them. That. Yes. And that's 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 actually a big part of the problem is that a lot of this stuff is just unconscious and you have to really think about it to figure out what your unconscious beliefs are. Like a bald guy might not even realize that's the reason that he's afraid to approach a girl. Right. Like he may just get it like a subtle sense like, oh, she's not. And then if he really thinks about it, he may be like, you know, oh, wait, I'm balding. Uh, that's that might be why. And then at, at that point, you can kind of use it as an asset. Like you could, you could create a style that's that's cool around your baldness. Yeah, you totally you know? can. Well, actually, so, or you could just accept it. Right, exactly. And but that's that's hard for some people to do. But you're saying if you do like a deeper dive and you provide some evidence behind these thoughts that you have, you might find that your thoughts may not actually be correct. That's funny. That's that's kind of like my coaching style. Most of the time, I'm just saying, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Because <laughs> all most most of the guys that I work with, they just they just tell me these beliefs that they have, and I'm just like, well, why? And then when you when you challenge people to actually think about why they believe things, they're like, Wait, why do I believe that about myself? Why do I believe that women don't want to be approached? Why do I believe? And so so it's it is just it's interesting that you can do this on your own. As well, and I think that this sounds like a, a fantastic tool. So, so what what exactly are the are both of these tools called that you've 
you just talked about. One is the hierarchy and one, well, I guess it's CBT. Right, the first is called, well, if somebody wants to look into it a little bit further, it's called systematic desensitization. Okay, systematic. That's the first tool. Now, the second tool is, is uh, more along the lines of cognitive behavior therapy. And I kind of touched on something called uh, ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, they're subtly different, but they're kind of of the same camp. ACT is kind of like a subcategory of CBT. So these are what like real actual therapists use. This is what, and if you're able to reverse engineer it, you have all the power of science, like I was talking about behind it. You have all these studies. CBT is considered the gold standard. Like this yeah. is, it's one of the most well, re, you know, researched, well respected in science. This is very mainstream stuff. This is not, you know, it's not like it's um, not like fringe. No, it's not woo woo at all. See, it's, it's the complete opposite of woo woo. So it's really the best that we have. Um, so if you have all this this backing of and power of science behind it, you know, you could be pretty sure. You could rest pretty sure that they. They are are good technique. So those are the names of the the two therapies that we have discussed. And again, they're they're very, very well researched. Amazing. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna be back with Chris and all the sciencey stuff. <laughs> so keep listening. Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I bet it is, and I bet you can get help with that. Where? At betterhelp.com. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can connect with them in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. To find a therapist normally, it's weeks, maybe months, if you're lucky. Well, with BetterHelp, you don't have to be lucky. It's convenient, professional, affordable, and check out their testimonials posted daily on their website. If you want to start living a happier life today, as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash askwomen. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash askwomen. All right, we are back with Chris. And actually, I want to dive in a little bit to you if you're open to it. Um, not necessarily, you know, how you became fascinated in all of these things, but more of the why. Because, you know, obviously you've read my book. So there's a, there is something there uh, in terms of curiosity about women and understanding women and being better with women. So are you open to sharing a li- little bit more about your background and potentially how all of these things that you've described in the first half of the ep- half of the episode have, have helped you. Well, I just have a fascination with human behavior in general, and I, I think that it's just understanding life. It just falls under the category of understanding life, and if it's a part of life, then I'm interested in understanding it. I am interested in the evolutionary basis of attraction. Uh, I think that is very fascinating, and I think that. You know, I, I think that your approach is better in line with uh, what what the literature has to say than a lot of these other uh, areas. Okay, well, like thank these, you. You know, these other guys that are that are. I mean, they're, they're not. I'm not. A I'm lot not of theirs is based in science as well, mainly. Yes, like, no, you're right. Yeah, so it's just not used for good. 
a lot of the times. That that that's the only negative that I find that's associated with it. Here's the problem that I find with some of that stuff. I find that it's very superficial, and you, you're trying to act as if you're a certain person rather than actually trying to be that person. If that makes sense, it does. But sometimes, well, kind of what we've been learning about is that you might have to act a certain way before you become that way. Do you not believe that? To a certain extent, uh, do I think it's the most effective way? Uh, I I don't know that I'm convinced, uh, but I do. It's really hard to say if it's the most effective way. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm convinced of that, but I also think that a lot of times you have to take multiple approaches. You don't want to just do one thing. You could you could tackle it from many different angles. So um, in psychology, we actually do find that if you are is a thing called cognitive dissonance. Dissonance. Um, so basically, when when you believe something, let's say you're acting a certain way, your brain starts to realize, okay, this is me. I'm this person because I'm acting this way. Because it has to make up for that uh, that dissonance somehow. Right. If this wasn't me, why would I be acting this way? In other words, right. It's so funny um, how. how it, it, your brain really can be tricked <laughs> constantly and yeah. in, and you're in full control of how it's tricked but that's that's exactly what we're getting at is you want to trick it to be correct really what we what we are is tricked but we're tricked in ways that are not beneficial to us right if that makes sense yeah completely um, so we're we're fed all this stuff we, you know we watch tv we listen to the radio you know and we have all these messages being that we just pick up whether whether they're saying something explicitly or not. We pick up on their attitudes and they start becoming us. And it's exactly what you said. It's like being tricked. Right. So a lot of your beliefs aren't your own. They're just things that you picked up. And it's really beneficial to look into those things and just just get the logic out of it. Like I said, just like understand with the, with why the, you believe them, which I think is I will say that that's kind of along the same lines of what I'm teaching guys, right? That is attractive to women at the very core of it. It's you can be a certain way, but knowing why you're a certain way and knowing what your beliefs are and why you believe those things are 10 times more attractive than just being attractive. Does that make sense? And what I'm saying? Yes. It's a self-awareness. It's it's hugely beneficial because otherwise, I mean, if you don't have self-awareness, you're basically... Like a chicken like a with its head cut off. Hey, you're just floating through life. You you don't know what's going on. But and sometimes that can be very appealing to to people, especially at different ages or different stages in life. People who float around, not really having a hardcore understanding of why they're doing things. Those kinds of people can be extremely attractive and infectious. And yeah. So anyway, I I, I I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but I I'm, I'm like trying to look at two different personas of men and and just seeing how that kind of person can be attractive at certain points. Well, I do agree because if you have that type of person, they're also not self-conscious. The flip side of being self-aware is you could be very self-conscious. Right. Uh, The the person that you're describing... Is free. Maybe just doesn't... Yeah, doesn't have a care in the world. They never had any reason to look inside themselves. Um, What we actually find is an interesting... This is where where data comes in. Um, The biggest determinant of if they look through poets, which poets commit suicide, right? 
and the number one, what, we, we actually looked through their poetry. So what do you think, what type of poetry do you think correlated best with suicidal poets? Love. Love? Wow. That's an interesting one. A lot of people say depression, like words that are, are sadness. We look for words that are talking about sadness, darkness. That's the first answer that a lot of people I wouldn't give, think it would be that because they're getting it on paper and they're expressing themselves. Maybe I'm wrong. That's an interesting. No, no, no. You, no, you could be right. That's actually, yeah, the research does back that up too. Like another thing is, you know, people who write about their traumas are less likely to feel the trauma. Yeah. But the first gut instinct people have is if they are using words of depression. But actually what we find is the use of self-referencing pronouns. Uh, in other words, the word I, the word me, the word myself, those words are statistically correlated with suicide attempts. Hmm. Interesting. Wait, can you elaborate on that? In, in, in how are they, like, just because they're constantly thinking about them? That's what it, that's what it looks like. Oh, that's very internal. That's a- that makes complete sense, actually. I don't know how mm-hmm. to verbalize it, but I understand that completely. That makes complete if sense. You to, you're I'm looking at yourself the all the time. If you're constantly fixated with looking at yourself, it, it, yeah, you become obsessed and preoccupied and you can't see anything else. Like, So I remember when I was going through my own coaching a long time ago, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I went into this coach who she was an NLP expert and she'd done Landmark and like all these other different programs. And I, I at that time didn't, you know, I never really had a coach and I went to go speak to her. And I remember during our first session together, she sort of just let me speak. And at the end, she looked at me and she said, wow, I see how harshly you judge other people. I can't imagine how harshly you judge your, yourself. And when I wasn't saying so many things out loud uh, on my own time, I was constantly thinking about me, how I was projecting myself to other people and what they were thinking of me and this and this and this and analyzing all my past mistakes that I'd done with all of these people. Uh, and, and What that, you perceive in others, what you perceive in others, you strengthen in yourself. Yeah. So I completely understand that. That makes complete sense. Very interesting. This is all, this is all fascinating and interesting, but... It, it, one thing, yeah. one funny, one funny little thing was... Um, the lead singer from Lincoln, Lincoln Park committed suicide. Yeah. And I was listening to one of his songs. I'm trying to, it's one of their really popular songs. And like the whole chorus is full of I, me, myself. Like, I don't remember if it was in the end. It was one of their really popular songs. And just the entire chorus and the entire song was just filled with I references. And I don't remember if it was up? a song. Yes, you're looking at yourself. And another interesting thing is, Okay, let's say they, they took emails between uh, bosses and their su- superiors and their subordinates, like professional. And we find that the person who references themselves, the person who talks about themselves more, is, the, is almost always the inferior person between those emails. So dominance actually falls into that too. The person that is referencing themselves is actually the submissive one, the more submissive one in the relationship. Actually, can you expand on that a little bit? Because um, women always talk about men who talk about themselves on dates. So can you can you go into that a little bit more and how that may present itself in the realm of attraction? It could be a reference of low self-esteem. In other words, whether you're talking about yourself positively or negatively, if you have low self-esteem, you could probably try to be building yourself up. So 
if you're on a date, maybe he's bragging about uh, this new business deal that he's he's just talking about himself constantly rather than just sitting back and relax and enjoying it. Like he, he's trying to give a persona. I, I think that's what I take from it. Or on the other hand, he may not do that and he may just talk about himself and how down he is on himself. But what we find, this actually goes even deeper than this because I don't know if you know anything about Buddhist philosophy, but we have no. in Buddhist philosophy. Oh, you're you would totally love it. <laughs> I'm sure I I'm sure I do know something about it, but I wouldn't label it as as Buddhism. But once yeah, I, hit me once with I, it. Once I tell you a little bit about it, you're gonna you're gonna be like all over. Okay. Um, we have a thing. The main enemy Buddhism is basically based on your main enemy is your quote unquote ego. It's your idea of who you are and the entire thing about buddhism is rising above your ego about like we all have this story about who we are it's uh you know my name is joe schmo i'm from uh los angeles california uh i drive this car i work at this place those are all concepts of ourselves but buddhism says okay those are all facts about you but are they you is that you no that's not you because when you were born, you wouldn't have that. But when you were born, you were still you. So uh, really, those facts about you are not you. So really, what Buddhism teaches us is to separate from that. From what they call it is the ego. From the ego, from your, mm-hmm. your idea of yourself. And really, the easiest to digest on this subject is um, Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. Yeah, it's of a really popular yeah. book. Okay. Yeah, Oprah was all over that. I know. If she's on it, I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. But yes, that's that's very, very popular, um, very digestible Buddhism. And a lot of people have, you know, had a lot of breakthroughs with confidence from working through uh, Eckhart Tolle's material. Yeah, definitely. So what I'm hearing overall is it's really just clearing away crap. That's what you're yes. trying to do. Like that's that's all that's going on. If you notice that there's a fear in place, there's just like a whole bunch of crap on top of something that you need to face. And sometimes you can do it by going to a CBT therapist or it sounds like you can do a lot of this yourself if you research some of the tools that you mentioned, which can you mention them again, just to, so that people know what to go research. So it's desensitized. Yes. <laughs> you say them, I, I won't mess it up. All right, cognitive, <laughs> all right, systematic, desen- systematic desensitization. Okay. Uh, the pioneer of that was Joseph Wolpe. I mean, nowadays there's probably even more advanced and I know there are, but that was just the originator of it. So if you want to look at the systematic desensitization, Flooding, extinction, those are all the words. If you want to pop them into Google, see what's uh see what is available. Those are for fear, that's that's pretty much the gold standard. But I would say for I would say that a lot of times fear, especially in situations like you're talking about, come from insecurity. Now the best thing for that, cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. Uh you'll find gold mines of, of stuff like that. It's it's one of the most researched techniques in all of psychology. It's just basically unquestioned. You know, it's, I mean, there are situations that like medication is needed for depression or whatever, but the, the research is very heavy behind cognitive behavior therapy. And a subset of cognitive behavior therapy is called uh, ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And there's, you know, you talked about like NLP. They're really, they're really not that different from the that. The old, yes, they're very similar. Um, NLP doesn't have, much of a research base, 
My, my problem with NLP is um, there's really no strict definition of what NLP is. So you have a lot of these practitioners, you have some of them that claim things that are like, you could clear, you could clear cancer out with NLP. So there's no like scientific definition of what NLP is and which techniques work, which don't. And I find that most of them are pretty, you know, are pretty good. But at the same time, it's, it's just hard about to facing it. It's a, the, the, at least what I found when I did a couple of sessions of NLP. It was about really honing in on what's going on and what like that one statement is that you're telling to yourself that surrounds all of these insecurities or fears, whatever whatever that thing is that's holding you back in a general area, and then facing it, it through visualization, through your imagination, and for some people. Through logic. Yeah, through, and, and through logic, exactly. There's a little bit of like, not wizardry, I don't even know what to call it because a lot of the process when you're clearing things is like, okay, now picture you reaching into your stomach and taking this fear out into your hand. And so I, so uh, uh, it, it's, not com- it's not completely logical. It's just, it, it's like letting your brain see that you're now throwing this ball of fear, this ball of anxiety, or this belief away. And 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 it does seem to to calm the mind because then when you do get back into that state where those things creep back up again, you're like, oh no, but I already cleared this ball. And then you can just visualize it again. So I I it's very in line with everything else that you're saying, but I don't know about clearing cancer. <laughs> I maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe for some people it does. Yeah. I, I mean my I don't I don't know. This is just this is only this is what this is uh what the the community's uh, gripes. The, the only thing I'm saying is NLP. You're saying it's, it's hard to define. So. Yeah, it's very loosely defined. So people can say whatever they can say. I'm an NLP practitioner. I can right. cure your cancer. I could. Uh, it's like it's like That's okay. Nice. What do you? So how can you say is this true or false? I, I, I think as in general, yes. I think there's a lot of practitioners that don't fall on that woo woo side. And I think it's I think it's a good thing. And I think a lot of the concepts are very close to what science says or what they what the more mainstream things about like you know, like cognitive behavior therapy say about this. The only benefit that you get with stuff like cognitive behavior therapy is the rigorous science and testing and the yeah. controlled studies and taking people, taking thousands of people and splitting them into groups and giving one placebo and giving one the real treatment and one a sham treatment and right. seeing if there's any difference in, you know, you have Harvard scientists that are that are looking into this. You have people at Yale looking into this that are testing this. So that's the benefit you get when you um, when you stick to the scientific side. NLP may be great. Like the, it may it, there may even be NLP techniques that work better, but you just don't have the backing of the scientific community always. Right. So there's there's pros and cons, and also a, a con of the scientific community is it takes them a long time to prove things. Right. You know, it takes funding. It takes money. Before these, you know, these guys, these these Harvard guys in the ivory tower, sometimes catch on to things and get the funding to so some things slip through the cracks. So there's there's pros and cons to both approaches. Yeah. But what I would say about the science is, you know, that it's well tested. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Chris, this was really fascinating. I've talked to you about this for hours, which I think is absolutely amazing, and I it, it motivates me even more to make programs that I'm going to make because I can actually see it a lot more clearly now. Because I, I, I just think it's really, it's uh, it, just hearing somebody else's motivational voice telling you things. I, I Anyway, forget it. I don't want to go into pitch mode for myself. But anyway, whoever is listening, this is coming very shortly and I'm super excited about it. Um, and I'm going to 
bounce everything I do off of Chris to make sure that I am scientifically aligned so that the people in the towers of Harvard can approve what I'm doing. Uh, but Chris, thank you so much for being on our show. And for anybody who's listening who does have approach anxiety or who does have a fear, who does have a self-belief that's limiting them with women. And most likely everybody who's listened to, listening to this podcast has one. That's why you're listening to this podcast for answers and for the assurance from myself and from other women who come onto the show that you know things can change and that it's not really what you believe. Do you want to tell people how to to get in contact with you, or is this is was this more of just a I want to give you my information and have nobody ever no, contact I, me? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it was good talking to you. They can contact you, and if there's anything interesting that needs, you can forward it to me. Okay, I perfect. Mind that. All right. So if you want to write in about this episode, write to ask at Ask Women Podcast. If you want to ask a question question of Chris, I can pass that that question on to him. Uh, but new episodes of the Ask Women podcast come out every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific. I am now posting them on YouTube as well. So go to youtube.com slash Marnie Kinris. It's not always the same episode that I post on Thursdays because I'm trying to you know, fill up YouTube a little bit more with some really, really great older episodes. But they're still up there for you to consume in any format that you like. So you guys are amazing and awesome and wonderful. And I can't believe you still want to listen to me after this amount of time. But thank you for continuing to do it. Uh, I'll see you next week. 